You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning, City Church. My name is Jake Axon. I'm the student's director here, and I am honored and overjoyed to be able to bring the Word of God before us this morning. I am also incredibly excited because this is the first time in my life that I've ever preached uh, to a room that's not full of 13-year-olds. Uh, as the youth director here, you know, you say a lot of things like God is holy, and it's nice that this morning when I say God is holy, I do not have to explain that that does not mean that God has holes in him, uh, which is really nice for me. So as we heard last week from Pastor Dean, uh, we're continuing in our First Corinthians series, and in First Corinthians, specifically chapters 8 through 10, uh, we see Paul really hit on the fact that now that the Corinthians are followers of Jesus, now that the Corinthians have repented of their sins, devoted their lives to Christ, they can no longer just keep blending in with the culture. They can no longer keep living the same way the world is living. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be in Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, chapter 10 is going to show us really the main thing is that it matters how we live our lives. And I know that seems like a really elementary thing, but it matters how we live our lives. It matters to God, and it it, it really, like, he cares about the very minute details in the way that we live our lives, Um, and he actually helps us in our efforts to live our lives for him, uh, which is awesome. And that's what we're going to see this morning. I'm going to pray before we start, and then we're going to read the text Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning, Lord, and the fact that we get together uh, in Tallahassee and proclaim your name, lift your name on high, and Lord, I pray that we would do that boldly. Uh, I pray that we would live our lives with a passion and fire for you uh, in this city in the hopes to see many come to know you. I pray that you would speak through me this morning, and uh, if I say anything that's not from your word, I pray that uh, these people would forget it, and if I say things that are from your word, Lord, I pray that they would resonate and convict and encourage. Uh, We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So Paul opens chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians with a warning. He says this, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3 says, they all ate the same spiritual food, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, since they were struck down in the wilderness. So Paul begins these first five verses with a plea for the Corinthians to pay attention He's saying, pay attention. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to miss this. I need you to see this. And then he goes on to explain the story of the Exodus, right, where God rescues the Israelites from slavery. He brings them through the Red Sea. He feeds them bread from heaven. He gives them water from a rock in the wilderness. And he does all of this because he wants the Corinthians to see. He wants the Corinthians to see that the people of ancient Israel experienced the immense kindness and blessing and love of God. Like God fed them, think about this, God fed them by raining down bread from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. He split the seas open to save them from a raging army of Egyptians. And Paul even puts it into a New Testament context 
by revealing that the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ. The rock that followed them in the wilderness was Jesus. Like the Jesus that we worship, the one who is our king and our savior, he was with the Israelites. He was with his people in the wilderness thousands and thousands of years before he would come to earth and pay for our sins. And Paul says all of this to say, you might be like, what in the world is going on? He says all of this to say this, ancient Israel experienced the grace and kindness of God as we see how he rescues them from slavery, delivers them from the evil of Pharaoh, and provides for them in the desert their food and water. In fact, the very spirit of Jesus Christ was with them. And yet, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. In fact, most of them, all but two of them, all but two of the Israelites were killed in the wilderness. And verse 6 says this, and this is how it applies to us. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire the evil things as they did. So Paul sees similarities between the way God was doing amazing things within the Israelites to display his glory and bless his people. And he sees a similarity between that and how the Corinthian church was also blessed by God. And God was doing miracles and bringing growth and life. And he makes this comparison to warn the Corinthians. He says, be careful, Corinthians, because what happened to Israel can happen to you. That's what he's saying. He's saying what happened to Israel can happen to you. And verse 7 says this, Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Talk about a horrible way to go, destroyed by snakes. And then verse 10, don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. That sounds way worse than being destroyed by snakes, if I'm honest. Verse 11 then says this, these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So not only is this a warning for the Corinthians, it is a warning for us. As a New Testament church, we need to look into what Paul is saying. We need to look into this warning that he lays out and go, how does this apply to us? How can we learn from this? And what he is saying here, he is saying, Corinthians, he's saying, city church, beware that you do not make the same mistake that Israel made, which is to think, That just because God is doing all of these amazing things in your midst, providing these awesome miracles and blessings and graces, that it doesn't matter how you live your life. The Corinthians and the Israelites were mistaking God's kindness on them for agreement with how they live. They were mistaking God's kindness and blessing on their community as agreement with the way they were living their lives, and it ended disastrously for the Israelites. And so Paul is concerned that if the Corinthians don't start caring about holiness, there's that word, which means being set apart. I'm just going to explain it anyways, because there's probably 13-year-olds in the room. If they don't start caring about holiness, being set 
apart, not looking like the world, if they don't start putting to death their sins and truly living for Jesus, forsaking the ways of the world, embracing this radical new life of being Christian exiles in a foreign kingdom, then God could and likely would remove the blessings and graces from the Corinthian church as he did in Israel. So we must make sure that we are not mistaking God's kindness on us to mean that he doesn't care how we live our lives. Paul is trying to get them to remember. He's trying to get the Corinthians to remember that following Jesus comes with a cost. Following Jesus comes with a cost. It comes with an unimaginable gain of getting to know him. Like, do we ever just stop and think about that for a second? Like, the maker of everything, the one who created everything, the one who knows everything, the one who is all-powerful and is loving and kind and gentle, he's not just some cool guy that we go, wow, he's awesome. We can know him. We can know Jesus, right? And so that's the huge gain of following Jesus. We get to know the one who died and rose again, who holds all things together But do not be mistaken that following this Jesus and knowing this Jesus will come with a cost. And oftentimes, it'll cost you things that you really enjoy. The Corinthians struggled to grasp the reality that being a follower of Jesus now means no longer participating in all the things that the world is doing. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't want you to go and be in the world and be lights in your community. Like, City Church canceled their equip class so that you could go to a Super Bowl party and be a light in that community. Like, we want you more than anything to be a light in your community. Jesus ate with sinners all the time. The difference was Jesus didn't go to the club afterwards with the sinners and get hammered. That was not what Jesus was doing. So, like, we want you to be in your community, but we also want you to understand, and Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that, like, we have to be able to live in this world without looking like the world. And so he's trying to help them to see that following Jesus now means not participating in everything the world is doing. And if you've ever heard a sermon on the Corinthians, like, they get a pretty bad rep. Like, they are always known as the wild congregation, the crazy Christians, and, and I mean, part of that is because they were pretty crazy. They were pretty wild. But Paul addresses some of the sins in, the, in these next few verses that were probably plaguing their church. But before we get into it, I just, I always think it's a helpful reminder to know that Paul is writing this letter to a church in Corinth. Paul is writing this letter to people who he believes to be brothers and sisters in Christ. As wild as they were, as crazy as they were, they were young believers who had encountered the grace of Jesus. They had repented of their sins and they had begun following him. But they just didn't understand, they didn't have the discernment yet to know that since they had begun following Christ, that means they need to stop participating in some of the cultural things going on around them that was normal for for people like them to participate in. And so Paul starts in verse 7 with a specific list of things for the Corinthians to look out for. He says in verse 7, don't become idolaters as some of them were. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Don't be idolaters. That's one of those ones in America where nobody thinks they're like an idolater. It's like, I'm not worshiping a golden calf. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim, right? And I say all the time in our student ministry, like, it's really easy to think, well, I don't worship a golden statue, so I'm not committing adultery. 
but, adult, but I, I'm not committing idolatry, but idolatry isn't as simple as bowing down and worshiping a golden calf. Idolatry is letting something else sit in the seat that Jesus deserves as the ruler of your life. Idolatry isn't just bowing down to a golden calf. It is letting something else stand in the place that only Jesus deserves in your life. So what's the thing that's sitting in the seat of Jesus? What is the thing that you are worshiping? And is that thing, ask yourself, is that thing worthy to take up his seat? Is that thing worthy to rule on the throne of your heart? That is what idolatry is. And no one in church would ever verbally say uh, that they're worshiping something other than God, but the reality is many are living like they are. And we need to consider this. Like this, is like, this was convicting me when I was reading this because it's so easy when we're reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, to go, man, the Israelites are just so dumb. Like, how did they mess this up so bad? Like, it's, like God was literally right there. And it's like, Paul's writing this to New Testament churches, which means we should consider what he's saying on ourselves. It's very easy to read the Bible and go, oh, man, they were really bad at this. But it's like, we need to look inwardly at us and go, are we doing what the Bible is asking us to do? Verse 8 says, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. 23,000 people died. This shows me that God cares a lot uh, about how we live. God cares a lot about what we do with our lives and how we live. Because in this specific context, the Corinthian church really struggled with sexual immorality. They really struggled to grasp that being a follower of Jesus means dying to self, dying to sin, no longer participating in the things that the world does, even if the most moral and upstanding and culturally good people in the world do these things. That's the, that's the struggle that we face, is that the things that Paul's talking about and the things that we know as sin, they're not even considered bad in our country anymore. They're not even considered wrong anymore. Like following Jesus for us isn't just gonna mean not doing the things that are bad culturally, but it means reorienting in our hearts what we know to be good and bad based on what God's word says is good and bad. It's not simply like fitting the standard of what is good in 2022 in Tallahassee. It means going to God's word and saying, what you say is true is true, and what you say is false is false, and I'm going to just take my life, and wherever I disagree with that, I'm going to conform to what you say. That's what it looks like. And it, like, we, just, we just can't be a church that looks like Christians and devoted followers of God outwardly and not fight to look the same inwardly because if we do, we're making the mistake that Israel made. And so as followers of Jesus, we lay down our lives before God saying, you're the standard for my morality, not culture. I want your word and your truth to be the standard for how I live, not what's popular. And he continues on in verse nine and he says, let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. So this is a reference to Numbers 21, where we see the Israelites testing God. And the best way I can describe this is they basically wanted to live in such a way that they got as close to sinning as possible without actually like committing full-blown sin. Like they want to get as close to the line of sin as possible without actually sinning. And I wonder in this country, like how often that's the case for people who follow Jesus. Because like, when we think about the gospel, Jesus Christ, 
The Son of God came down to earth, lived a perfect life. He died the death on our behalf. And like when we think about that, like there is no one in the world, no one in existence who hates sin more than Jesus Christ. He is repulsed by the idea of it. He came down to earth, lived a perfect life, and then he, the one who hated sin more than anyone, was counted guilty of all of it. Like Jesus and sin just don't go in the same sentence together. He died to free us from our very sins, to save us from the very real and terrifying wrath that God has on us for our sins. Like it is the best news of all time to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again because our sins can be taken away forever. We can leave it behind and remove all of its evil tentacles that try to pull us down and seek to suffocate us and starve us. And yet, many Christians, it's like they they get their sins forgiven, they're following Jesus, and then they turn around and they want to see how close can I get to follow, how close can I get to that line of sin without actually crossing it. And I was trying to think of a way to make this even more just compelling, and I was thinking about it in the context of marriage. Like, what if your spouse, who you've exchanged vows with, you've committed yourself, you've committed your life to, you say, you guys say you love each other, you enjoy spending time with each other, yet every chance they get, your spouse tries to get as romantically close to someone else as they can without committing full-blown adultery. Like, they say they love you, they're a pretty good spouse, but they're always trying as much as they can to grow romantically close to someone else without actually committing adultery. If you're a spouse worth anything, you'd say, no. You'd say, that's wrong. That's unfaithful. That breaks my heart. When you got married, you said, I am yours alone, forsaking all others. That means you only have eyes for your spouse. You don't toe the line of how intimate you can get with someone else, but you steer as far clear of other people as you can because that's how much you love your spouse. Guys, we are the bride of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, he died to purchase us as the church, as his bride. And when we toe the line of sin, when we get as close as we can without actually crossing it, we are flirting with someone who is not our spouse. And we have taken our eyes off of Jesus and are putting our attention on someone else. And Paul warns the Corinthians of this. It's just warning after warning after warning. And I know it feels heavy. He says, don't test Christ. It matters how we live to God. Verse 10 says this, don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Grumble means complain. Don't complain as some of them did and they were killed by the destroyer. You guys, he is warning them to stop complaining. Stop being a grumbler. Like Paul sounds like every mom talking to their kids on a road trip. Like stop complaining. Stop asking when we're going to be there. Stop, stop, stop. And instead, guys, hey, instead of next time like threatening to take their iPad away or send them to timeout, you should be like, hey, if you guys keep complaining, you are at risk of being killed by the destroyer. <laughs> See how that works. I bet you they stop. Like, seriously, though, like after the Israelites were freed from slavery, and it's like this is one of those moments in Scripture where we go, like, how could the Israelites be so dumb? They were in slavery for 400 years. They get rescued from slavery, and then like a month in, they're complaining about the food in the wilderness. They're complaining, like, we, we had it so much better when we were in slavery. We had it so much better in Egypt. And in their complaining, they're revealing that they don't trust God and they're not content with where God has them. 
And finally, Paul wraps up this warning after giving a whole list of sins that Israel struggled with for verse 11. It says, these things happened to them as examples. And look at this, they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Guys, this is all written as an example for us. This is all written as an example for us to learn, to grow, and to be warned. The Israelites used God's blessing on them as a get-out-of-jail-free card to do whatever they wanted. And it's as if God didn't care how they lived. It's like, look at what all God is doing. He's rescued us from slavery. He's feeding us in the wilderness. He's giving us water from a rock. He split the Red Sea. Like, we're clearly good. Like, God clearly is okay with us. And I just think there's a real danger in modern churches in America where instead of God's kindness and blessing transforming the church into a holier, more Christ-like, more missional, more theological church, instead God's kindness just leads them into more pride and more blindness to our own sin. It's like we see God's kindness on us in the church and we're like, awesome, I can take my foot off the gas. Clearly God is, is, is satisfied with what we're doing. Guys, there's a real danger that God's kindness doesn't lead the modern church into more holiness, but instead into more sin. And there's a danger that God's blessing doesn't lead the modern Christian into more desire for him, but into laziness in following him. And I just wanna be honest, guys, like I've been going to City Church for like five years total. I don't think I've ever seen a church more blessed than City Church is. I don't think I've ever seen a church where God is just favoring and blessing a church more. I mean, we baptized 39 people at our last baptism Sunday. Like the gospel is going out, people are getting saved, people are being discipled, people are growing. That is all amazing, but all that also does is set us up to be the primary target of this warning. Like, so we really need to think about it. We really need to consider what is this saying. We don't want to see God's blessing simply as acceptance for how we are living. And Paul's warning us about this. We need to examine our lives individually and as a whole, examine the life of City Church and be careful that we're not abusing the grace and blessing of God by becoming blind to our own need for sanctification and growth. And this plays out on an individual level because yes, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, but the church at Corinth are people, right? And so we need to, on an individual level, as members of City Church, watch our lives, watch our actions, and make sure we're not making the same mistake as Israel. Like, I don't want to be the reason why God removes his blessing from City Church. So let's make it our goal every day to live lives of constant and regular prayer and confession to God, seeking to look more like Christ every single day. Because it is possible. It is possible to experience the kindness and blessing that God is giving to City Church, to check every box of what a follower of Jesus looks like, have perfect church attendance, have perfect equipped class attendance, tithe, serve, and still be far from God in the way that you live. This is the warning that Paul is giving. And so City Church, I just want to give you a reminder out of love for the gospel and out of love for you guys, that going to church does not make you right with God. Being a member here does not make you right with God. Perfect equipped class attendance doesn't make you right with God. Being under the cloud in ancient Israel doesn't make you right with God. Passing through the parted Red Sea doesn't make you right with God. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ 
The perfect Savior makes you right with God. And what an amazing truth that is. Because as I was writing this, I was reading all these sins that Paul's listing out, and I'm thinking to myself, like, why would Dean give me this passage? This is the one where he's just warning the church over and over. It's like, let's send the youth director up there to warn the church. But as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, who could do this? Who could keep this list? Who could live this out perfectly? And the reality is not one person could. Not one person could live this out. But thanks be to God that our salvation is not based on following a bunch of rules. Our salvation is not based on keeping the law perfectly, but on the death and resurrection of Jesus who died in our place on the cross. So let's make sure, because we believe that is true, that we're not just looking like we're following Jesus, but we're actually following Jesus. We're actually conforming to his kingdom. He is our king, and we're not a Christian by looking like a follower of Jesus. We are a Christian by following Jesus. So Paul is saying, don't get lazy. Don't grow weary in doing good and in killing sin, for this is the Christian life. And our works obviously don't make us a Christian, but if you claim to follow Jesus, you will prove your salvation to be legitimate by living a life that is marked by hating sin and loving Christ. And so City Church, I wanna be a church that takes God seriously in his word. And as we take God more seriously, we take ourselves less seriously. I wanna be a church that gets involved in the things in our community with mission on our minds, lost people on our hearts without going headfirst into all the sins they're committing. I wanna be a church that cares about the lost and broken in Tallahassee and who cares about theology and knowing our God on the deepest level. I wanna be a church that doesn't make the same mistake that ancient Israel makes where we assume that because God's blessing us that he, he agrees with how we're living. So how do we examine our lives? How do we actually take this and do something with it? And the answer is we need to read our Bibles every single day. And when we read them, we hold scripture up in front of us like a mirror. And we go, whatever this is saying, if I'm not reflecting that, if I'm not looking like that, I need to change to fit this image right here. We need to read our Bibles in the aim of reflecting what we read, letting what we read change our lives to be more like Christ and less like the world. So that's the entirety of Paul's warning to the Corinthians. And then in verse 12, he says, So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Guys, there are temptations left and right in our lives, and they feel unending at times. And I don't know about you, but for me, they feel like they're just growing and growing and growing with the way the world is changing. But if we're going to live for Christ in this city, in this world, then we must fight temptation. Thank God for verse 13. Look what verse 13 says. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. No temptation has come upon you except ones that are common to man. Guys, there is a strange comfort in knowing that our temptations are not uncommon. It is a comforting thing to know that we are not alone in our struggles. You know when you were in school and like the teacher walked up to you and when they handed you your tests, they like, They like flipped it over and slid it to you and you were like, oh no, I just bombed that test. And you're feeling bad about it and then you look across the room and you see your friend also failed the test and you're kind of like, hey, let's go. I wasn't the only one who failed. Like there is a real sense in which like 
When we struggle with temptation, it is comforting to know that I'm not the only one facing what I'm facing. Whatever the temptation is that you are facing, it has been faced by other believers around the world, so be comforted in that. However, on the flip side of that coin, it is convicting to know that my temptations are common. My temptations are normal, and Christians have faced them for thousands of years, and yet I give in to them. They are common temptations that everyone faces, and there are many Christians who have put them to death. Therefore, I should be better about not giving in to them. What is our hope in this? Look at the second half of verse 13. It says, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. I want you to hear me when I say this, City Church. There is not one temptation that you face, that God does not think you can overcome. If you are a believer, there is not one temptation that you face that God thinks is gonna sink your ship. And this isn't some prosperity gospel, self-help, 10 steps to being a better Christian. This is straight from 1 Corinthians. There isn't a temptation that you will face that God does not think you can overcome or bear. And as a Christian who struggles with sin just like everyone else, there are few things more comforting in Scripture, comforting, encouraging, empowering than this right here, that God, by his power, by his strength, by his grace, will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. People want to say about their temptations, and I've joined in this crowd before, I just feel like I have no choice. I've just been fighting and fighting and fighting and I just can't shake it. It's, I feel trapped, I just can't stop. I feel like it's a supernatural temptation and it may feel that way, but the word of God says that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And in fact, God will provide the way out every single time that you may bear it. So not only is your temptation common, Not only is your temptation bearable, your temptation always has a way of escape provided by God himself for the sake, for you believer, for the assurance that you will not fall away. God has given you a way out of every single temptation. And I want us to understand that this is an insane amount of grace. If we saw all of the sins and temptations that God didn't let come our way, we would be overwhelmed at the grace and kindness that God has for us, that he knows us where we are, he knows the amount of hair on our heads, he's not gonna give us a temptation that he thinks is gonna sink our ship. If God did not provide a way of escape, guys, we would fall every single time to every single temptation we faced, but God provides our way of escape for every temptation so that our hope will not flicker, our ship will not sink, and our joy will last forever because he is good because he is good, not because we've done anything, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, because he is loving and kind. Man, sin has such a way of lying to us. It promises, sin promises joy, sin promises satisfaction, sin promises peace, and I don't know if you've noticed yet, but it can't deliver on any of it. It promises things that it can't deliver. But when you begin to walk with the Savior, 
the one who authored life itself, and you live life the way that it was intended to be lived, you will experience the joy, peace, and satisfaction that sin has promised but cannot give. You will. So City Church, let's fight temptation boldly, knowing that God has given us a way of escape. These temptations that we're facing, no matter how strong they are, no matter how powerful they feel, they are not unbreakable, they are not unconquerable. So let's be a church that fights every day, gets into God's word and says, I wanna look like this. I wanna look like this as we read our Bibles. And let's be a church that examines our own lives on the inside, examines our church as a whole and says, I wanna be a church that looks the same on the inside as I do on the outside. And as we do it, we fight temptation boldly, knowing that God has given us a way of escape, and these temptations, no matter how strong, are not unbreakable. And the more temptation and sin that we put to death, the more that we get into God's word, seeing how we should live, the more time we spend growing more like Christ, more in love with Christ, more infatuated with Christ, more in love with him and his word, the more your joy will increase, and the more people will come to know Jesus in this community. So let's be a church that fights for that. Let's be a church that lives lives of constant confession because the reality is we are going to sin. The the thing that we can't do is become blind to it. We can't go look at what God's doing in our church. We're totally fine. We need to constantly, out of a love for Christ, not to earn the love of Christ, out of a love because Christ already loves us. We love him, so we seek to live lives that honor and glorify him according to his word. That's what we need to do. If we want to see people come to know Jesus and if we want to experience the greatest and sweetest joys of following Jesus, that is our aim. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, uh, Lord, for your word and the fact that you warn us. It can feel intense, it can feel scary, it can feel overwhelming when we read some of the things in your word, but God, it is a grace that you would warn us. It is a grace that you would even consider us. So Father, I ask in here that, Lord, we wouldn't be discouraged by this. Lord, we would be encouraged that you do love us. And if there are people in here who aren't following you, you offer your love to them. So God, I pray that if there are people in here who aren't following you, they would take that first step and trust in you knowing my sin, I can't take care of it myself. I need someone to stand in my place. And if we are Christians in here, God, and we are following you, I pray that we would be convicted to go, I need to work on living for Christ every day. I can't take my foot off the gas because you're worth it, God. You are worth it. Every last tear, every last bead of sweat, every last drop of blood is worth it in your service, Jesus. Because it's nothing like what you did for us on the cross where you died to take our sins away and invite us into your family. So I thank you for that. I pray that this word would convict us and encourage us this morning and we would leave here with more confidence and more boldness to kill the sin in our lives because we know that you have provided a way of escape. It's in your son's mighty name we pray. Amen.